So I was reading an article the other day. Uh, I know it may be surprising to some of you that I can read, but I can. Um, this is, these are actual words. Anyways, um, this article put well uh, what I experienced in my time in college at Northwestern and then in college ministry uh, back at Northwestern. This article showed research that from about 2008 to 2016, those who were not Christians would generally express that their opposition to Christians was that they did not believe what Christians believed and they did not believe the Bible, right? So they, from about 2008 to 2016, the general consensus, there was like a survey of people who did not consider themselves Christians. Their general opposition to Christians were their beliefs. Now, I was in college during this time, um, not all eight years, but um, you know what's, <laughs> yeah, uh, a lot of people go to school for eight years, right? Um, it's a Tommy Boy reference. Uh, you know what's interesting? I didn't grow up a Christian, um, but uh, I grew up in a very Christian town. And so I go from being this agnostic kid in a Christian town, and then I became a Christian late in high school. And then I'm the Christian kid at, at a primarily agnostic university. It was really fun. Um, so, but when I went there as a new Christian, uh, I was met with a lot of people who would just be like, you know, Jesus didn't exist, or he wasn't actually God. Um, and so I, I felt this very, very significantly. Had tons of conversations with my friends. I was a biology major um, for three years and, until I failed out. And, um, and so I didn't actually fail out of the, I don't need to explain. Um, so I, I just had tons and tons of conversations, one person after another, of just like, how can you actually believe this, right? The article then goes on to show that folks tune changed um, from 2016 to about now. Um, they began to express that their main issues with Christians were not that they didn't believe what they believed. That, that may have still and probably was still true. But the main issue that they had was that they no longer believed Christians themselves, themselves believed what the Bible said, right? So do you guys see the change, the difference? It moves from not believing what Christians say to not believing that Christians even believe what they say, right? That was the main issue, a shift. Yeah, yeah, that's tough, right? Tough to hear. So I returned back to Northwestern uh, in 2015, and then I worked there from 2015 to 2020 in college ministry. So a lot of time during this, uh, the second half of this article. And, and I'll tell you, like I felt the shift. The shift was marked. I went from showing that Jesus could have existed to listening to student after student, many who were formerly Christian, expressed that they were so burned by Christians expressing that they believed in one thing and then acted in another, right? So why the shift? Why was there this major shift? The, uh, the main reason suggested in this article was that these folks saw Christians as believing more in gaining and holding power rather than loving their neighbors. So Christians at this point, I'm sorry that's so small. I, I, every time I send slides and it's just like tiny, but it happens. Um, so Christians no longer are known for their love, but by their desire to control. And this has probably been true for a while, but it has it's come up to the surface a lot more recently, right? Okay, so why do I bring this up to a church, particularly in relation to Philippians 1 and 2? Because I'll be honest, I don't think the outside perspective of the church 
should always, or most of the time, be our motivation, right? We look at this passage, and even here, Paul says that there will be those who oppose us. We will suffer as a result of our faith. But I do think the outside perspective of the church can be a bit of a diagnostic. What are we known for? And when what we are known for, as this study suggests, shifts from the scandal of the gospel of grace to our hypocrisy, we have to pay attention. So look at how our text starts this morning. Whatever happens, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see, I believe the American church, in particular, the white American church, is at a pivotal moment in our existence where we must decide, will we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, or will we decide that our worth is determined by our status, our power, our position? So this morning, I want to explore how it is that we conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel. What does that look like, right? What does Paul's call on our life look like? What does it look like to live in gospel living? But before I do that, let me pray. Uh, Lord, we just thank you so much for this morning. We thank you that we can gather here together, that we can look at your word, that we have the resources to dive into your word. Um, to hold a service where we can just focus on you. And so, Lord, I pray that the focus uh, is on you this morning, Lord, um, that this is for your glory, not mine, or the uh, Missio Dei Uptowns, that this is, um, yeah, this is about you, Lord. And so I pray that uh, what words are remembered are yours and not mine, Lord, um, and help me to tell the truth and the whole truth. Here's the same I pray. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the text. Uh, I've already highlighted this, but I started with Philippians 127 for this morning instead of just 2.1, because I believe it is a pivotal statement here in Philippians that structures the rest of the book, um, but more importantly, our passage for this morning, right? Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I believe this is a pivotal statement to understand if we are to understand Christianity rightly, right? Now, many of the of pe- many people would say that they see this as a call to action, right? Live rightly. And it is, right? Conduct yourselves worthy uh, of the gospel, right? Live rightly. But I think many would read the motivation of the passage wrongly. Live rightly so that God may love you. And that's where we get it wrong, right? Our motivation to conduct ourselves and a manner worthy of the gospel is not to earn God's favor. Our motivation is because we already have God's favor. The gospel says that we fall short of the glory of God because of our sin, and as a result, we cannot fellowship with God. We have broken relationship with him, right? But God saw this and reestablished relationship with us by defeating the death we deserved through the death of Jesus. And as a result, we are put rightly back in relationship with him. And not only are we put rightly, we are made to be seen by God as holy, perfect, and blameless. We are made like Jesus. So when we see passages like this, or you'll see some similar wording in Ephesians 4.1, 2 Peter 3.14, it is calling us to be who we have already been made, to grow into who you already are. When we decide to follow Jesus, our identity has changed, right? The work is already done. We have been made daughters and sons of God 
And so this admonishment, this charge, is for us to live out that daughterhood or sonhood as children of the Most High God. And the charge is to live our, look at the wording, it's to live our lives at the same value as where we decide the worth of the gospel is. So if the gospel is worth anything to you, live your life like that. Charlie Dates, uh, pastor at Progressive Baptist, says this, if God cannot have all of us, he won't take part of us. In other words, if you believe the gospel is as beautiful as I believe it is, live like that, right? Think about the man who found the treasure in the field. What did he do? He sold everything he had, right? He decided that his entire life, everything he had, everything he did was worth that treasure. And Jesus says, so is the kingdom of God, right? So if this is our charge, if this is what we're called to, to live as who we already have been made, the following passages are what it leads to, the results of living like this, and then how we do that. So let's go ahead and look at what it leads to. So what is conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel results in, uh, what's it go toward, right? We see a theme in the next few verses, and then in the beginning of chapter two. So I've laid it out for you. It says things like this. Stand firm in, in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, encouragement from being united, common sharing in the spirit, be like-minded, having the same, same love, be in one spirit and one mind. So what do we hear here? What, are, what is sort of the theme? One at a time. And yeah, unity, right? Uh, oneness, right? Now, some of you tensed up because when I said this, uh, you, you realize like unity and oneness has been weaponized in the past, primarily by white pastors, male pastors, in churches for decades in order to cover up abuse, racism, and every other type of junk in the church, right? So let me say this up front, because this is really important to understand. Paul was writing from the margins to a people on the margins in the first century, right? So his call for unity looks a lot different than mine would, right? We need the voices of people who society deems as on the margins to be our voices in areas like this. Not my voice, I'll be honest. Um, so I'm not going to, it's funny because I am going to talk a little bit about this, but I'm not going to talk much about it, right? Because I, I just want to lay out what unity isn't and then very shortly what it is. Um, and then we're going to go into the second half of the passage. Because I do want to call out just a few things with regards to unity and how it's been weaponized in the past. First, what unity is not. First thing is it's not uniformity, right? The kingdom of God is vast and different. It does not... Unity does not mean our worship or the way we live out our faith look the same, right? They should not and will not. There will be similarities, of course. Like there are core truths of the gospel, right, of the faith. But the way that they play out is going to look different. Unity is also not finding middle ground. This is the most important one in our context because I think um, people from power in particular often use unity um, as a calling for finding like middle ground. But the reality is, is middle ground is not holy ground. Let me say that again. Middle ground is not holy ground. Let me give you an example. Letter from a Birmingham jail, right? 
Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. What was it a response to? Many moderate white pastors were writing to Dr. King saying they believed in what he was doing. They believed in the ultimate goal, right? But they thought it was best to slow down and find some middle ground with the segregationists and Jim Crow apologists. Now, we know this is ridiculous, right? In, in their context, right? And letter from Birmingham jail is championed, as it should be. But had we been in the context of the time, I don't know if many of us would have thought the same things as some of the white pastors. It's obvious to us in this situation that middle ground is not holy ground. The reality is, is you can have unity and call, still call people to a better ethic, a better way of life, a better way of treating others, right? Middle ground is not holy ground when it comes to police brutality, when it comes to the white backlash of our time, when it comes to abusive leaders, right? The list goes on. Unity does not mean conceding the higher road. Unity also is not silence in the face of injustice or abuse. This is somewhat similar to the last one, but unity is not just keeping the peace, right? Because true peace does not exist for those in the midst of injustice or abuse. So all we are doing uh, in those calls to unity is shielding and keeping the abuser or oppressor comfortable. Unity is not colorblind, genderblind, contextblind. Uh, I could have gone a lot of sort of categories here, but many will say when you talk about race or gender or any of these other things, you're intentionally causing a stir and it does not promote unity. But unity can only exist when each of our lives and our problems are properly context. Contextualize, that's the word. Uh, con context matters and we don't ignore it to keep someone comfortable, right? And then finally, I, I just led to this, but unity is not always comfortable. We have to recognize that. Like unity is not kumbaya around a fire, right? In fact, true unity doesn't usually look like that at all, right? We are gonna have difference of opinions. We're gonna have conflict. We're gonna wrong each other. And so unity is not comfortability. So what is unity? It's meeting at the cross. It's taking our conflict, taking our issues straight to Jesus and working it out in the context of the kingdom of God. It was once described to me like this. We're all on our different paths to Jesus, right? But when we are in fellowship, we're coming from different places, right? But when we are in fellowship with him, even if it looks different, we're in fellowship with one another. We may be doing different things at the house party, right? But we're all in the same house. Okay, that's enough for me. I said I wasn't gonna talk about it and then I talked about it. So, so then we get to, so here's where we're at, right? The call is to conduct your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. One of the results of that is some aspect of unity, of meeting with Jesus together, right? So then how do we get from the call to the results, right? That's the how. See, in Philippians, um, this is just a recap even, Paul gives us an if-then statement. If this is true, then this is true. He says this. Uh, do we have this slide? It's just the next one. Uh, the next one. There. Um, no, that's my fault. <laughs> um, so he says this. If you have any encouragement from being, being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing of the spirit, any tenderness and compassion. You can look at these later. These are, these are really important. But you should know this about these. He's saying like, if you have these things, and I know you do, right? It's sort of like when someone asks you 
a, a very obvious question where the answer is yes, and your response is like, does a bear poop in the woods, right? Like, that's what he's saying. Like, if these things are true, then do this. He's saying, these things are true, therefore, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and one mind. So that's where we're at, right? The unity, right where we were. But then look what he says next. The how. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So right there, he gives us the playbook for unity. It's humility. Unity is meeting at the cross and in humility, considering others above yourself. Do you all remember how I started this morning? I hope you do. It was like 10 minutes ago. Um, That Christians in America, predominantly white, have decided that living out the worth of the gospel means seeking power and status. And yet here in Philippians, I would contend we have the exact opposite sentiment. Consider others first. Value others above yourself. Looking for the interest of others is what conducting yourselves uh, in a manner worthy of the gospel looks like. Now, one can contend that Christians in power can wield that power in order to serve others. And I agree. I don't think this mean, humility means we ignore our privilege, our power, our status. I think humility requires self-awareness to say, see where we have the power to serve others and to use that power. However, we have to look honestly at what people who call themselves Christians in power have done, right? And what this pow- pursuit of power has cost us morally. And consider that the criticism that we do not live out the gospel is a valid one. So then, if the how is humility, our final question this morning is, how do we do the how, right? How do we live out this humility? What does that look like? And I think that there are two ways to answer this. I believe the first one is practically, what do we do? How are some things we can live out? And then the second is, how do I actually do it? right? Maybe I know how to do it, but how am I going to do that? How am I going to not think about myself a lot? So I'm going to go ahead and jump into those two uh, to end our morning. The first is practically how to live out those. And I just have a couple of examples here for us. The first is that we're entering a season that can tear churches apart, right? Changing leadership can sometimes open avenues for people to insert their agendas that do not generally benefit the whole church benefit them. To be completely honest, this happened uh, in 2018 in my hometown church where my parents went and had a change of leadership. And when that opening arose, a few families took the opportunity to start making changes to the church that generally benefited them. It it drove out more than half the church, probably 70% of the church that had just grown under the previous pastor. Some of the casualties of this power grab were my parents, right? 2018, and they haven't been back to church since. Now, am I worried about that for this church? No, but we have to at least consider it and continue to value others above ourselves. This doesn't mean don't be vocal in this process, right? Please, by all means, do be vocal. Asking good questions is a service to a healthy organization or body of people. And I would consider this church to be pretty healthy. But through prayer, 
consider if questions arise from desiring the good of the body or the good of the individual, okay? All right, next one, another way that this practically plays out. I think sometimes people often get humility uh, confused. They find that humility is in conflict with things like therapy, mental health, rest. And that's not true. Humility is not defined by thinking less of yourself. When someone constantly puts themselves down in order to seem humble, I think it's actually uh, a sign that that person needs to be cared for uh, and that they need to be told that that's actually false humility. And I can say this pretty confidently because that's me. This is something I struggle with pretty significantly. Okay, and then the third way that I think uh, this can play out is that I, I would urge us to consider this one. I, I think this is the most important one. I believe humility requires, requires an awareness of who is in the room with you. The acting out of humility, the valuing of others above yourself, requires relationship. Requires is a strong word, but it generally requires relationship. I have to know how you feel valued in order to value you, right? I need to notice if there's someone new in the room in order to be a welcoming and warm face. I'm sorry to, if there's any new folks in the room and you get overwhelmed this morning. Um, but I need to be able to consider someone else's position, consider what might be hard for them or uncomfortable for them, right? Someone I see do this really well. I'm so sad they're not here this morning, but Daniel and Morgan Anya, I think, if you guys know them, I think they do this really well. Almost always when I meet a new person here, they've already met Daniel and Morgan. And they've already been invited to everything by Daniel and Morgan. Um, when we're in spaces, when someone isn't necessarily talking to someone, I always notice that they're the ones uh, seeking out the new people or the people who aren't as integrated, right? I, I'm going to turn blue in the face saying this one over and over. We have to fight to be an other-centered community at all times. And I say this thinking we're, like, decent at it, <laughs> honestly. Like, I think we're pretty good, and I will kill, still continue to say it. I think we're at a pivotal point in American church history, like I said earlier. And so I believe we even need to go above and beyond what we might consider other-centeredness. We have to be markedly different, right? We have to fight for our own hearts to value others more than ourselves. What are we going to be known by? Okay, so again, I'm answering the question, how do we live out the humility? So that was the practical, right? Uh, the, the final question here is how, how do I actually do this, right? You may be asking yourself, yes, I know some practical ways I can care for others and practice humility, but how do I do it more? I found myself wanting this, but then thinking about myself more and more. And to answer your question, I would say me too, right? Um, this is a pretty significant struggle for me. So the how, then, is this. Well, the passage continues in Philippians in this way. In your relationships with one another, have the mindset of Christ Jesus. And then it laid out how Jesus, though he is God, saw what we needed, right? Saw the penalty for our sin is death and that we could not pay it, and he came down. He did not use the equality with God, being God for his own advantage, but for ours. He knew he didn't deserve the penalty of death, and yet he paid it on a cross. So yes, I believe this passage is saying to emulate Jesus in this way, right? But I don't think it stops there. See, the goodness of the gospel, the worth we were talking about earlier, 
is not just that by Jesus' blood, we've been made right and justified. Yes, that is true, but if it stopped there, do you know what we would do? We'd go out and continue to blemish our record with no hope of growing because sin still has every power over us. But it doesn't stop there. Sin does not have power over us. Sure, it gets us sometimes. We can be selfish. We can do, say, think some bad things. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is not just our example, but also our empowerer. He has given us the spirit to lean into and be able to consider others more valuable than ourselves. I want you guys to look with me at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and this is how we're going to finish. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race that marked out for us. Here we are. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising or scorning the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? See, it's saying the same thing as the Phil, our uh, Philippians passage. We should look to Jesus, yes, emulate him. And as he went to the cross on our behalf and despised the, the shame, but he also defeated death. So it doesn't so, just say to look to Jesus. Look at what it calls him, the founder and perfecter of our faith. See, he founded our faith. He justified us, wiped us clean, gave us a relationship with God but he also perfects our faith. He is the power for us to live out humility. We consider others more valuable than ourselves by leaning into that power that Jesus gives us to do so. And you know how you do that? You ask by faith and you believe that you can. That's really it. God, I want to value others more than myself. I want to walk in humility for the sake of others that they might know you. And then just move your booty toward doing that, right? Sorry, behind. Yeah. That's it. There's no secret recipe. It's just the power of God.